and welcome to Controversies in Church History, a podcast that takes you through the most important controversial events in the life, uh, long life, of the Roman Catholic Church. Hello and welcome again. My name is Derek Taylor. I am your host for this podcast. Uh, welcome to all of our listeners. Thank you all for listening once again. I'm very humble that you want to listen to this podcast. Um, if you uh, like the podcast, you know, share, uh, share it with others. Uh, let people know it's out there. Uh, we are on social media, uh, Facebook, I like the page there, Twitter, I tweet mostly silly stuff there, but I'm there. Um, also, uh, on the web at churchcontroversies.com, website has some stuff on there, links to the, all the episodes, uh, and uh, well as a blog and links to my articles, which I have published in various places, like Crisis Magazine mostly. Uh, and of course, the podcast yourself, you can go follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Also on YouTube, you can go, you know, subscribe there. I post uh, stuff on YouTube as well. And then finally, if you would like to become a patron of the podcast and support what I do here, uh, greens the wheels a little bit, uh, you can become a patron. Go to a Patreon, uh, search Controversies in Church History. It should come up. Um, and you can do that there. But thank you, everyone, for supporting the podcast in whatever way you do it. I really, really do appreciate it. And today for you, we have a single episode, which is on uh, a topic uh, that's kind of been on my mind for a long time. And it's actually one of these episodes where I am effectively retconning something I wrote and didn't get published. Uh, and the question I'm going to answer here is, is the Pope an absolute monarch? Now, this is something that uh, comes up a lot, actually. Sometimes when you hear people, you know, complain about the Pope, um, his government, um, people will say, well, he's an absolute monarch, right? And so in this essay, which I can't remember where I sent this now and tried to get it published and couldn't, probably because it's well over 2,000 words, that's kind of long. <laughs> um, I, what I do in this, uh, this essay, which I'm going to read for you, and I'm not, then I'm going to comment on it. I have a couple of comments I want to make and relate that to contemporary realities in the Catholic Church. <clears throat> but it's actually about, because this, you know, again, this podcast, I say this all the time, it's not a theological podcast. It's not an apologetics con podcast. It's a history podcast. That's my background, my training. And that's most of what this is going to be. I'm not going to talk about, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the government of the papacy itself, which is not my area of expertise. But the reference here calling the Pope an absolute monarch. There is an actual historical, you know, uh, type of monarchy called absolute monarchy. And that's what I'm going to look at here. And we'll see if the Pope is actually like an absolute monarch. And not to spoil it for you, but the answer is actually yes. Um, papacy is an absolute monarchy. However, it's not what you think, most likely. And it's not the common meaning of that term. So I'm going to talk about that in the uh, historical background a little bit, and I talk about some of this in the in the paper as well, um, related to the papacy, a little bit of theological stuff. But I'll talk more at the end of it and comment a couple, of, make a couple of comments I didn't make in the actual essay itself, which is long enough. So um, sit back and enjoy. I'll read the essay and then uh, talk about it a little more. So, is the Pope an absolute monarch? Many good faithful Catholics seem to believe that the Pope is an absolute monarch. By that, I mean the Pope must be obeyed in pretty much anything he commands, and that to refuse is tantamount to a mortal sin. As Pope Benedict XVI remarked, 
they seemingly believe that the Pope's, quote, thoughts and desires are law, unquote, and must be obeyed in every instance. This is a response one hears quite frequently these days in response to initiative coming, initiatives coming out of Rome. If you disobey the Pope, even in the most trivial matters, you are effectively a Protestant. There are obvious moral problems with such bald statements, for if the Pope commanded you to murder someone, you would of course be obliged to disobey him. But we are discussing matters here much more subtle, obviously. In reality, quote-unquote absolute monarchs differed quite a bit from the popular caricature current today. Getting a sense of what these monarchs were actually like can help clarify some of the issues at stake in debates over authority and obedience in the Catholic Church today. The term absolute monarch in everyday parlance has come to mean something like a dictator who can do whatever he wants. This is actually a distortion of the historical reality based upon the propaganda of modern democratic societies, which originated with the overthrow of those early modern monarchies, or what we sometimes call the Ancien Regime, the old regime. The term absolute, as was applied to these rulers in early modern Europe, signified that the sovereign, and it did not necessarily have to be a monarch, had no equal in law, was subject to no authority on earth, and that no subject of his, his or his, uh, could actively disobey him. Most, if not all, believed absolute monarchs derived their power directly from God, and so was subject to God alone. The purpose of these absolutist ideas about monarchy were twofold. One was to free monarchs from accountability to their subjects at home, meaning they couldn't be deposed and overthrown by them, uh, and from interference by foreign powers, which, by the way, uh, as it turns, uh, turns out, often meant popes, even for Catholic monarchs. This sounds like tyranny to modern ears, but the idea was that by making the king the only source of legitimate coercive power, it would reduce the types of conflicts that plagued early modern polities, mostly revolts by ambitious nobility, and since the Reformation, religious, religiously inspired violence. Absolutist thinkers uh, often portrayed uh, absolute monarchy or absolute government as the only alternative to anarchy, without which the state would simply collapse. Absolute, undivided sovereignty was necessary for the security and preservation of the state. This is why for these thinkers, only quote-unquote pure forms of government could be sustained, democracy, aristocracy, monarchy. Mixed governments created too much opportunity for conflict. Beyond this, all these thinkers saw the monarch as the primary maker and interpreter of human laws. They rejected the contractual theory of limitations on monarchical authority made by the people, or the idea that the people might depose the king for violating such a contract. Uh, according to these thinkers, human laws were not supposed to be changed at will. However, the king could dispense with some of them if they went against the common good. This did not mean that, a, uh, that a, an absolute monarch could do whatever he pleased, however. Early modern monarchs were bound by both natural and divine law, which they explicitly acknowledged to uphold in their coronation oaths. Sometimes absolutist writers claimed monarchs were restrained by quote-unquote fundamental laws of the kingdom. But little agreement existed among these writers about what these were, however, and such uh, an idea of, of uh, 
of fundamental laws often became a source of conflict itself. Some early modern theorists maintained that the king must respect the canons of the church, even among Protestant theorists. But by the end of the 17th century, this had given away to royal absolutism in places like England and above all in France, where the clergy declared for the king's independence from Rome in 1682, issued a declaration uh, that the king was essentially independent of Rome in ecclesial terms, what's called Gallicanism. In Catholic countries, defenders of absolute monarchy equated assertions that one could resist them with Protestantism for polemical purposes. But plenty of Protestants defended absolute monarchies as long as they were Protestant. It should be noted that some very prominent Catholic thinkers, such as St. Robert Bellarmine and Francisco Suarez, among others, embraced contractual theories of government and attacked the idea of royal absolutism in the name of the Pope's temporal authority. Fierce debate raged on whether or not a subject could ever resist, even passively, the command of a legitimate monarch. These debates often turned on what the cause for resistance was. Protestants who thought the monarch was undermining the true Protestant faith thought it could be licit, and Catholic thinkers often thought the same thing, even when they felt a Catholic monarch was undermining the Catholic faith. I should note, these, were, these types of cases were exceptional, and normally a subject was supposed to obey their sovereign. In practice, the absolute monarchs of early modern Europe were actually fairly limited in their ability to impose their will on their subjects. One primary reason is they did not have at their command a modern bureaucracy, and so were dependent on the consent of local authorities to govern. One famous, famous example of this problem is taxation. Louis XIV of France uh, imposed what he, uh, intendant, uh, royal officials on his kingdom in order to collect taxes, um, supposedly subjecting, subjecting local authority to these intendants. However, the tax system he created could never fully be rationalized um, because the various regions of France had their own laws. Uh, many of them had been former kingdoms or principalities, and so were exempt from a whole variety of taxes. It couldn't impose a uniform tax code on the whole country. Moreover, regional legal bodies called Parlement offered avenues for resistance to the French crown, which often stymied uh, attempts by royal ministers, royal ministers to reform uh, the kingdom's taxation system. The failure of the monarchy to reform itself in this regard is part of the reason it succumbed to the revolution in 1789. It simply went broke. This reliance on subordinates is what made quote-unquote absolute monarchy different from a modern state with an effective bureaucracy. Perhaps the only exception to this might be the Prussia of Frederick the Great. But for the most part, they were nothing like a modern state. Louis XIV, the Sun King, possessed no class of bureaucrats loyal to the institutions of state for their own sake. He had to manufacture on the loyalty of his subordinates, his nobility. That's why he had to make the nobles uh, uh, in his kingdom live at Versailles uh, near him so he could overawe them, browbeat them as necessary to gain their allegiance. The famous chronicler of Louis XIV's reign, the Duc de Saint-Simon, who wrote a, a series of memoirs about what life, like, life was like at his court, daily life, uh, and Saint-Simon was really critical of Louis XIV, but his depiction, his famous depiction of Louis XIV's working day 
which began at 8 a.m. and ended at 11 p.m., seven days a week without fail, demonstrates how much personal effort was necessary to make a monarch, quote-unquote, absolute. And when such effort was lacking, as with Louis XIV's successors, uh, it ceased to be effective. What this brief overview should convey is that early modern governments were not nearly as powerful as modern nation-states. And this is key for understanding the Pope's authority in practical terms. Popes in the Middle Ages could command a bureaucracy no medieval king could match. One historian commented that, as late as the 15th century, the papacy remained, quote, an object lesson in bureaucracy, unquote, for the kings of Europe. And they could, of course, count on the loyalty of celibate clergy to carry out their commands, although not universally. Bishops, if they were powerful enough, might openly contradict papal policies in their own right. One such in the 13th century was, uh, did so was an English bishop named Robert Grostesta. Um, but more often, with the support of powerful lay patrons, they could effectively stymie the pope. Um, this happened, uh, of course, during the investiture controversy in the 11th century. But with the emergence of the modern state, uh, all this was turned on its head. The modern nation-state can draw upon the resources, types of resources, that Louis XIV could only dream of, and so can impose its will upon those it governs much more thoroughly than any absolute monarch or medieval pontiff ever could. And so you can see the growth of absolute monarchy in the early modern era um, paralleling the growth of papal absolutism in the late 19th century in Europe. Both uh, developments were a product of the perceived need for order in the face of a great emergency. Just as absolute monarchs tried to bolster their authority uh, by making more sweeping claims for it in the wake of the violence of the Reformation, the First Vatican Council sought to stabilize the Church by elevating the Pope's authority as much as it could in the wake of the French Revolution, the Risorgimento, and other challenges to its authority in the 19th century. Subsequently, the Vatican enacted reforms which appear, in, appear to have been intended to make it more like a modern nation-state, to be able to treat with it on something like equal terms. In 1917, the Vatican promulgated its first integrated code of laws, the Pio Benedictine Canon Law Code. Such legal systems, which are universal and run everywhere, are a hallmark of modern nation-states, which insist on one set of laws applying across its entire territory. But this was a novelty in terms of the universal church. It had never been done before. Similarly, the reorganization of the Curia after Vatican II, with its enlargement of its bureaucracy and its reorientation toward the world, can also be seen as an attempt to make the Vatican function more like a modern nation-state. If you don't know what I'm referring to, in the 1960s, Paul VI beefed up the bureaucracy of the Vatican and rearranged its, its offices. Prior to this, the most powerful office in the Roman Curia had always been the Holy Office. Because why? Because it was a doctrinal enforcer. And, you know, beliefs mattered more than anything else. Um, subsequently, the Secretary of State has been the most powerful figure in the Vatican after the Pope. Uh, why? Because they deal with other, other, other nation states. And so there's this sort of... Um, increasing sort of almost secularization, not secularization, but um, turning toward the world, if you like, in the orientation of Vatican uh, city-state's government. 
The problem with these changes is that, in practice, the Pope is still dependent on bishops to carry out its commands. The papacy lacks the resources, bureaucratic and financial, of a modern nation-state, and simply cannot impose its will on a global institution in the same way a modern state does upon a much smaller territory. This is why Pope Francis' resort to quote-unquote sacking bishops, and I'm referring to his removal of the bishop, one of the bishops in Puerto Rico uh, last year or the year before, will not work in the long run. Popes cannot simply dispense with bishops when they refuse to do, refuse to do what he wants, at least not en masse. They still need them to run the church. It is also why so many initiatives of John Paul II and Benedict XVI never made any impact. I am thinking here of Ex Cordiae Ecclesiae and Summorum Pontificum. Ex Cordiae Ecclesiae was the uh, John Paul II's apostolic, apostolic constitution on, uh, on uh, Catholic universities, uh, trying to make them Catholic again, um, was largely ignored. And Summorum Pontificum also was largely ignored. Most bishops simply refused to do anything about these, uh, these documents, and so they withered on the vine. I can mention others, by the way. But the similarity with absolute monarchs of that period isn't limited to their effective lack, lack of effective control over the institutions they governed. One other aspect of early modern debates on absolutism was whether, uh, whether and what, to what extent kings might alter human laws, uh, which laws were changeable and which ones not, which laws were fundamental and which ones not. In the early modern period, people were only gradually beginning to understand that human laws changed over time. Many still believed that human laws were unchanging and that monarchs shouldn't be able to change them. This is why, for example, when the kings of England began to try to make laws without parliament and experiment with new forms of taxation in order to raise revenue, opponents in 17th century England in the parliament appealed to a myth of a quote-unquote ancient constitution whose nature was immemorial and unchanging in order to try and curb royal power. The question they faced, they faced was whether or not the sovereign had the right to fundamentally alter the nature of the polity, its constitution, for lack of a better term. The main difference between the Pope and uh, absolute monarchs, uh, at least traditionally, is that the Church is supposed to have a divine constitution, meaning that it is immutable and uh, cannot change, because it's become from revelation, divine revelation. It is disagreements about this that inform arguments over what type of, of obedience is due to the Pope. Benedict XVI, in his 2005 Christmas address to the Curia, pointed out that the Church has a divine constitution, which cannot be altered unlike a modern secular state. Critics of John Paul II and Benedict XVI um, used to argue for a constitutionalist vision of the Church, um, such as Francis Oakley, but one that is essentially like that of a modern state. <clears throat> Oakley, who was an eminent historian of early modern thought and church history, has explicitly stated that the church has no irreformable teachings because of, quote, the historically conditioned, reformable, and essentially provisional nature of all doctrinal formulations, ecclesiologies, and church structures. Conciliarist no less than papal, unquote. Thus saith Francis Oakley. These constitution, church constitutionalists have been notably silent after the elevation of Pope Francis. The reason is that the debates about the Pope's authority are really proxies, in some ways, for disputes about the nature of the church. 
Critics of papal authority under John Paul II and Benedict XVI, who now cheer Pope Francis, are not necessarily hypocrites. I suspect many, like Oakley, believe the church's constitution is essentially mutable, essentially like that of a um, political organization, and they resented earlier popes for not changing it to their liking. Others, of course, would be fine with uh, believing the church has an immutable constitution as long as it included approval of of things like homosexuality, women's organization, and other progressive demands. Excuse me. One reason these debates are so rancorous is that they cannot be resolved in the same way that the nation-state resolved the problem of early modern sovereignty, or the early modern problem of sovereignty. Um, because the papacy simply lacks the resources to impose its will on the church in the same way a modern nation-state does. And this is a problem that really cannot really be remedied. The papacy is not a modern state and cannot be made into one. In this sense, it is accurate to say, as several Catholic commentators have, that the church has become ungovernable. In other words, to answer the question in the title of this essay, Yes, the Pope is an absolute monarch, but he is like the real monarchs of the early modern age and not like the popular caricature who is essentially a dictator. The Pope is bound to be obeyed as are bishops in most circumstances, but his authority has limits, primarily those of revelation and natural law. And like them, he has, and more to the point, like them, like these early modern monarchs, these early modern absolute monarchs, He has a relatively limited ability to impose his commands on the church compared to modern governments. The presumption in in favor of obedience, but the lack of means to enforce his commands, is why those defending Pope Francis invoke the term absolute monarch in the first place, in order to overcome this weakness by appealing to a Catholic uh, loyalty to the papacy. But this presumption of uh, obedience to the, to the papacy must mean that the church does have a divine constitution which cannot be altered. Because if it does not, and if the constitution of the church is just as mutable as any other, then there is in principle no, no real difference between the authority of the pope and that of an elected politician. And that, to say the least, would call into question whether popes can reasonably expect such a high standard of obedience in the first place. Thus, uh, my essay, Is the Pope an Absolute Monarch? A couple of comments on this. <clears throat> now, I mentioned in, uh, in, that, uh, in that essay uh, the original reasons for the growth of ideas of absolute monarchy were two. One is to put down rebellions at home, make sure their subjects couldn't rebel against them. But secondly, to... Um, to ward off interference from foreign powers. And I mentioned how you know, the papacy is like an early modern monarchy and not being able to impose its will on, its, on, its, on the people that it rules in the same way because it doesn't have the resources. I should mention that also applies to the papacy's ability to deal with uh, external interference. And I'm mentioning this because, of course, that was in some ways the, uh, the impetus for the, for, the, for the growth of papal authority in the 19th century. Uh, threats from modern secular nation-states. And make no mistake, there are threats uh, from modern nation-states. But I'm not sure the papacy really has the power to do much about that. And now I don't want to get into, you know, uh, well, I'm not, I'm not going to get conspiratorial here. I don't, think it, I don't think it's getting into that that sort of realm to say that there, there are institutions out there that would like to manipulate the church. Governments, 
large private organizations, NGOs, um, you know, um, um, entities that favor things like population control. Oh, they have a definite interest in wanting to influence the, the Catholic Church. And, you know, you can see things like the Vatican's, the deal that the Vatican made with the People's Republic of China. And it, I don't think it's crazy to think that, and again, background to this, I actually did an episode on this, by the way, the, the papacy has made, you know, deals with suspect regimes in the past, to be sure. But this deal is so bad, and the papacy, papacy has gotten so little from it, I do not think it's crazy to think that somehow the Chinese influenced this deal. In other words, uh, because of its lack of resources, again, one of the things about the papacy is that it constantly runs a debt. Uh, it constantly runs at a loss on the Vatican city-state, in other words. Uh, and so that means it's susceptible to, to bring the bribery. Um, if you don't know, um, Theodore McCarrick, um, the sexual abuser Theodore McCarrick, the former priest Theodore McCarrick, the other former abuser, Maciel, Maciel, uh, Maciel I can't remember his first name, the one who was uh, the founder of, uh, oh God, what was the name of that religious order? Anyway, he was also the serial um, abuser. Uh, they were both influential partly because they're really good at raising funds. And both of them distributed their funds liberally around Rome. So Rome has that problem in practice because it just doesn't have the resources um, to sort of compete with a modern nation state. And secondly, uh, is something about another reason why it's bad, I think, for the papacy to imitate the modern nation-state. It goes back to the nature of law in modern societies. Years ago, um, one of my mentors pointed out that if you ask someone um, what image came into their heads um, when, they, when you said the word government, if you ask someone that question in the Middle Ages, what would come into their minds would be a law court. And the reason why, when you, you say law court, they, let's say government, they'd see a law court, is because that's where you would go um, to, uh, that was government to them. Government was the administration of known laws, right? Anyway, law in the Middle Ages for a long time was little more than sort of written down customs, but it meant it was laws that everybody knew about and could tell what they were. Of course, law is very different in the modern, modern age. My uh, professor pointed out that if you... Um, Ask a modern person that same question. What image comes into your mind if we say the word government? The image, of course, for an American is the Capitol building. And for some other place, it'll be some other, you know, parliamentary building. The reason being is because when we talk about government, we mean, we mean uh, primarily organizations that don't apply known laws, but that create new ones to adapt to new situations. That's because in our modern era, we got the Senate, we have this sense that, you know, Society is changing constantly, so we constantly need new laws, which is why we have so many laws we don't know what to do with anymore. <laughs> but we assume that because we have a historical sensibility. The problem with applying that sort of second idea to the church should be obvious. Again, if it's supposed to have a divine constitution, it's not supposed to change all the time. Um, and its first, first and most important duty is, of course, maintaining the known laws, maintaining revelation, the deposit of the faith. Uh, and yet, seemingly, the Vatican is becoming more and more like this, issuing more and more laws constantly um, since the 19th century. Above all, in the current pontificate, uh, Pope Francis has issued more motu proprios, 
um, than any of his last two successor, uh, predecessors, I should say, combined. If you don't know what a motu proprio is, it's a document that literally means on his own authority, where Francis has effectively been ruling by decree for the most, not for the most part, but in many ways in his pontificate. Um, and so you have this, this again, I think it's some ways a push to sort of, you know, you know, almost, like I say, secularize the, the, the Vatican government in a way. Um, recent changes um, by the by Pope Francis have made that governance even more, I would say, something like an, a modern nation state because he just issued, a, I can't remember the name of the document, uh, reorganizing the curial departments in the Vatican, effectively centralizing more power in the Pope's hands. So increased centralized power and something like secularization because he's actually called for having laymen in posts in the Vatican government again. This has caused issues because, of course, you know, the church has always claimed that laymen didn't have a right to do that. That's what the Gregorian reforms were about in the 11th century, to keep, uh, you know, lay hands of what, what, was, uh, what was the responsibility of those anointed by God alone. So you had this increasing, it seems to me, emulation of the modern nation state. I don't think it's very healthy. And it's partly because, you know, the papacy is something like an absolute monarch of the early modern period. And in fact... You know, the ideas of sovereignty, it's not surprising that these early modern monarchies were drawing on go back to the papal ideas of the Middle Ages. Um, the Pope is a peculiar type of monarchy, and it can't just be sort of retconned willy-nilly in ways that I think they're trying to do, at least from a distance. Again, I'm not an expert on any of this, but it does seem like it's a bit of a stretch. And so I guess in a lot of ways I'm saying, yes, it should be like a, an absolute monarchy <laughs> rather than a modern nation state. Uh, but of course, with the caveat that it has to be limited by revelation and natural law. Otherwise, it just acts like some sort of, you know, um, secular government. Um, so I don't think that's the way to go. Uh, and I'm hoping, well, in the next pontificate, hopefully that'll change a little bit. I don't know. We shall see. But that is all for this episode of Controversies in Church History. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. Uh, if you did, please help spread the word. Uh, if you know anybody who might be interested in it, you know, if they like this type of thing, historical stuff, um, quasi-academic sounding stuff, I'll let them know. Share a post on, on social media saying, hey, I listened to this episode. It's really good. Um, you know, uh, uh, help spread the word. I'd appreciate that. Uh, you also follow us on social media, Facebook, like the page, uh, Twitter, go follow us there. Uh, Controversies in Church uh, Histories on the web, churchcontroversies.com. Check us out there. Should have, by the way, another another essay in, in crisis being published soon enough. Um, also on YouTube, go like, go uh, go subscribe there as well. I'm trying to increase the membership on the YouTube channel. Uh, hopefully, monetize it at some point. And, um, and then, uh, you know, again, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, uh, and lastly, again, if you want to become a patron, you can go to Patreon. Search controversies in church history. We have, I think, three levels. They're all really. Not substantial. I think it's five, seven, ten dollars a month, something like that. But if you like to do that, go do that. But in any case, please help spread the word. And thank you all again, once again, for listening. Um, most, most humbled by by your support. I really appreciate it out there. And uh, look for some stuff coming up in the near future. Other episodes. Um, it's the last thing before I let you go. Uh, should have for everyone the third episode in our series on Latinization dropping soon. I should have. For uh, patrons, the next episode, next couple of months, not come on, the next couple of weeks dropping on the fourth episode in the series on Latinization of the Eastern Churches. 
And in the works, uh, this may be a little longer to get to, but a, a very interesting episode you will not want to miss, uh, be one on the Pearson Integrated Humanities Program, which if you know what that is, it's going to be an interesting one. I have an interesting take on it for you, so look out, on look out for that. And then finally, I've promised interviews and live streams. I swear I'm getting to them eventually. I know a lot, a lot, a lot of you out there waiting for this stuff, but I do want to interact with you guys a little more and give you some different content especially our patrons, which I appreciate. Um, so promise that's coming, hopefully sooner rather than later. Still working on some things here at home. But that's it. Uh, that is all. God bless you all. Thank you, guys. Uh, have a great week. See you next time.